Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Today, one of my favorite, favorite people to read, Jason Riley. This guy's super brilliant and he's super honest and he doesn't care if you don't like it. (laughs) My kind of person. He's a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He's a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's author of the new book, Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell, the brilliant Thomas Sowell. Uh, And he happens to have authored one of my favorite books when it comes to race and police and culture, a book called Please Stop Helping Us, How Liberals Make It Harder for Blacks to Succeed. And that is just a massive truth bomb that he, he promoted on, among other places, The Kelly File a few years ago that I read and have reread since many times. And I think you're going to love that as well. So we're going to get into all of that with Jason. Uh, and we're going to kick it off with a, with a good discussion on this surge in murders in not just our major cities, but in our suburbs now, too, and whether the plan to defund police is likely to help that. Uh, so Jason, in one minute, first this. Jason, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Megan? I'm good. I am thrilled to have you. I'm such a fan, as you know. Uh, you're brilliant and really excited to talk to you. Well, thank you. And in a, in a future uh, episode, it needs to be you and Naomi. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Can we start with the crime rate? Because I've, I've seen that you've been writing about it. And, you know, as a fellow New Yorker, I worry about it here, but it's not just our city. Uh, according to latest stats, there's been a 30% increase in homicides, the greatest of all crimes, because <laughs> they're like some people defend this by saying, oh, no, no, you're like other crimes are down. Oh, but murders are way up. 30 percent increase in homicides across 34 U.S. cities year over year. Um, murders up 37 percent across 57 localities. So it's not just the big cities. And um, here in New York City, you pointed out in a column recently, the shootings and the homicides have re- risen by 97% and 44% respectively in the last year. Felony assaults up by 25%. I could go on. This is here in New York, seven of the eight Democratic mayoral candidates are pledging to cut the police budget or prosecute fewer suspects. Great. And it's not, you know, it's Philly's a mess. Baltimore's a mess. Uh, All these major cities seeing homicides up across the board. Why is it happening? And do you think this actually will cause people to reconsider this nonsense about cutting cop funds? Well, to answer the second question first, yes, I do. I, I, I think um, um, uh, that was always something favored by sort of uh, the wokest of the woke. I, I don't think it ever really resonated with everyday people. And I think uh, the, the crime stats you, you just cited will quash that, that effort uh, largely. Um, why is it up? I mean, why wouldn't it be up if you look at what we've been doing in recent years in terms of... You know, these bail reform policies, uh, not just here in New York, but throughout the country that take away discretion from judges in terms of uh, holding suspects or releasing them on bail. Uh, We've taken away that discretion. During COVID, we were releasing people early from from prisons uh, to avoid crowding. Um, and, And then, of course, you have this defund the police rhetoric, uh, which I I think results in, 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 in police not just a defunding the police rhetoric, but really uh, anti-law enforcement generally has, has been 
uh, on the rise, uh, particularly in the wake of, of George Floyd. You've seen these protests. You've seen targets put on the back of police. They are being scapegoated for all kinds of social ills. I think that causes them to pull back, um, to, to, uh, to, to engage less with the general public, to get out of their cars less. Um, and, and, and the result is that the criminals have the run of the place. And, and mm-hmm. so I'd be shocked if crime wasn't going up, given what, what's been going on lately. This is a real issue because even if you live in the suburbs, um, according to the, the people who are studying this, and this is a quote, murder rose historically, even in the suburbs and rural areas this past year. That's not what you want. You don't want historical rise in the murder rates, um, suburbs, local cities, large cities, you know, across the board. And in one of your columns, you talked about what what's going on in Baltimore, where this is from um, something you recently wrote. They began defunding police a decade ago. Since then, nearly 3000 of Baltimore's residents have been murdered. No matter you, you write in March, the city's top prosecutor announced that the era of tough on crime prosecutions or tough on crime prosecutors is over and that her office would no longer pursue so-called minor offenses. This year, Baltimore's homicide rate, which is already 10 times the national average, has risen by almost 20 percent. So in the face of all these numbers, you've still got these more liberal cities, or at least run by you know more left-leaning politicians, right now doubling down on these crazy promises. Right. And, and, and it's not just anecdotal evidence, Megan. There have been empirical studies done about what happens uh, after a high-profile incident involving police and black suspects. Uh, the media swoops in. Um, uh, uh, the the uh, you know, Washington, the Justice Department, uh, launches investigations. Um, there's, there have been studies done on, on what happens in the wake of all this. Uh, what happened in Baltimore after Freddie Gray, what happened in Chicago after Laquan McDonald, what happened in Ferguson after Michael Brown, the same pattern. Um, police pull back. Um, they, they, uh, they are less aggressive. Policing takes place. And crime spikes, particularly violent crime. It happens time and time again. And of course, the folks who pay the highest price are these minority communities who are most in need of effective policing. Um, so it's not just anecdotal. It's, um, it's, it, it can be shown empirically. Uh, an economist named Roland Fryer at Harvard has done uh, studies on this, and he's uh, not the only one who, who, who's done studies on this. Um, the, what, what troubles me is, is that all of this seems to be based on a false narrative, this focus on policing. Um, uh, the 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 reality is that the problem uh, are, is violence that does not involve police. Um, the, the violence involving police is quite rare, and 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 I wish the media would do a better job of putting these incidents in perspective. And what's happened is that because each of these incidents gets uh, more attention than it used to, thanks to social media. Um, thanks to all the camera phones out there, people are under the impression that it's happening more often. But those two things aren't necessarily the same. And the data, the empirical data shows 
that is happening less often. So, so just to put this in perspective, uh, New York City is, is a, a police department that has been keeping detailed records on, on shootings going all the way back to the early 1970s on police shootings. So in 1971, um, uh, police shot more than 300 people in New York City uh, and killed 93. You fast forward to 1991, police shootings are down to 100 and 27 people are killed. You get to 2019, police shootings are down to 34 with 10 people killed. So you're talking about roughly 85, 90% reduction in police shootings and police shooting fatalities over a roughly 50 year period. Um, that's, that's, <laughs> that's what the data shows. But the rhetoric out there is that we have an epidemic of cops targeting people, particularly young black men. It is that completely divorced from reality. And, and that is what uh, troubles me the most. We had these protests last summer based on this belief that what happened to George Floyd is typical. Happens all the time. I walk out of the door every day worrying about something like that happening to me. No, it's not typical. It's rare and it's increasingly rarer. And, and, and so uh, that, that's what I find uh, so troubling about this discussion. You know, you want to go after uh, bad cops? Yes, let's go after bad cops. All cops are not perfect. Uh, some of them shouldn't be cops. Maybe it should be tougher to fire some of them. Maybe we can do something about the immunity. But the idea that the, that the, that the major problem in these cities uh, is policing is, is ridiculous. In Chicago in 2019, there were 492 homicides. 492. Three involve police, Megan. Three out of 492. I mean, that's not a policing problem, but that's what we spend all our time talking about, policing. Well, and you've, you've pointed out that the biggest beneficiaries of the trend in reducing the numbers who are killed by murder and, you know, just overall are, are Blacks. Uh, who, who in your book you wrote, comprised 60% of the murder victims in the Big Apple in 2012. So Black people are benefit the most when we manage to reduce the murder rates. How do we do that? We need more police on the streets. But we're pushing this false narrative about police being the bad guys. So we get them off of the streets or just sitting in their cars doing nothing, which leads to a spike in the murder rate, which disproportionately affects Black people. And somehow this makes, in particular, white liberals feel good about themselves. Yes, and, and that, that is a, a, another problem here, is that you have a, a liberal elite out there, a black and white liberal elite, um, that claims to be representing the, the interest of these low-income individuals who are most affected by violent crime, uh, but are not. I, I, poll after poll shows that the people who live in these communities, everyday black and brown people who live in these communities, want more policing. They are very interested in crime control. And it is by no means a new phenomenon. I could cite you polling data going back 30 and 40 years about uh, low-income Black uh, residents uh, of these communities uh, calling for more cops, calling for longer sentences, um, and, and on and on and on. So when, when, when you go and turn on your television and, and, and listen to uh, these talking heads call for defunding the police or, or say that the policing in these communities is a bigger problem than the criminals in these communities. They are not speaking 
for the residents of these communities. They are not. And I think it's, it's, it's a shame that the media con continues to turn to them to, uh, to, to speak on behalf of the residents of these communities because they're, they are, um, they're not speaking for them. You know, we've had a lot of discussions on this show over the past nine months about cops and systemic racism and all the charges. And this is what you hear, um, that police are more likely to see a weapon where none exists when they look at a black person, that police are definitely more likely to rough up a black suspect, that um, bail disproportionately leads to uh, poor and often black defendants sitting away, wasting away in jail pretrial, then it affects um, others, you know, in particular whites who may have more uh, economic resources, that blacks get sentenced more harshly than whites do, that, that the criminal justice system as a whole has systemic racism baked into it in such a way that the entire system may need to be revamped. And that, you know, police officers have such an inherent bias now, uh, whether it's based on crime stats or not, that they're treating black people in an unfair manner, right? So people looking at the problems of the system aren't really looking at the bottom line murder rates. They're looking at all these other little things that add up to what they call systemic racism, and they say a need for overhaul. I would just challenge them on their data and their logic. Um, if racism explains what's, what's happening today, you know, why were there lower uh, black uh, crime rates lower black arrest rates, lower black incarceration rates back in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, when obviously there was a lot more racism and a lot more racism in our criminal justice system. Um, it just doesn't make logical sense. Um, in, in 1960, uh, black men were murdered at a rate of 45 per 100,000. By 1990, that had, claimed, that had climbed up to 140 per 100,000. I mean, was there less racism in 1960 than in 1990? Obviously not. Something else is going on here. Uh, so I would, I would, uh, and, and some of this is just outright uh, false. I mean, the, the claim that blacks commit the same uh, crime and get longer sentences simply is not supported uh, by the facts. Um, if, if, if you and I commit the same crime, Megan, but I've committed it four times before, that's going to play into the sentencing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and a lot of these uh, claims that, that Blacks uh, receive different sentencing uh, don't take that into account. So you, ha you really do have to look at the methodology of, of these studies uh, being released. Um, and criminologists that have looked into this um, point out that, you know, Black crime rates were declining, declining in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, the Black homicide rate for Black men uh, fell by 18% in the 1940s, and then by another 22% in the 1950s, all the while remaining relatively stable for whites. And this was particularly noteworthy because this is a time when Blacks are moving from rural areas into urban areas, and urban areas are usually much more violent traditionally. Yet the Black uh, homicide rate was falling. Uh, and this this trend would, would begin to divert, uh, reverse itself starting in the late 60s and start to climb in the 70s and 80s and on into the early 90s. Uh, so it's climbing at a time when racism in society in general is lessening. So this whole idea of, of, of citing racism as this all-purpose explanation for what's going on in terms of the black crime rate just does, does not hold up to, uh, to, to any serious scrutiny. So why? Why was the black crime rate climbing over those decades? 
I, I think it has to do with um, what's happened since the 1960s in terms of uh, the black family. Uh, uh, back in the 1940s and 50s, you had much more stable black families. Uh, you know, most most black kids, even into the early 60s, uh, were were raised in a home with a mother and a father. Um, today, uh, most black kids are not raised in a home with a mother and a father. And in some of these urban urban uh, communities uh, that that have all this crime you were talking about, your Baltimore's and so forth, it's up to 80 or 90 percent. Mm-hmm. And 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 the the the, the the social science on on the, the negative uh, correlation between uh, an absent father in the home and use of drugs, uh, dropout, uh, school dropouts, teen pregnancies, uh, involvement with the criminal justice system, and on and on. All these bad outcomes are associated with uh, absent absent fathers. And, and I think that's what you see going on in Chicago, these young black men running around shooting each other uh, because they have no, no, no sense of, of what it means to be a man. And they're acting out, and and that's uh, an absence of, of 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 black fathers in the home and in these communities raising these kids. So that that I think is what um, largely explains uh, uh, what's been going on in recent decades. Two questions on that: Does the absence of a married father in the home mean the father's not around? Right? Because I've heard some people say just the, the fact that there isn't a married couple there in the home doesn't mean the dad's not around. In defense of you know sort of the the black community, I guess, and these these stats, which some people take issue with. And secondly, can we get into why it happened? You know, the, with the great society programs, that you, the, the title of your book, which I love so much, please stop helping us, right? It's like, stop helping us, how liberals make it harder for blacks to succeed. And I know you take aim at some of those programs at the beginning in the 1960s that were meant to help the black community, but you, you do not believe did. So can you just start with, are the black fathers around even though they're not married? No, no, they're not. They're not around. Um, that that's the problem. They're having kids and they're not taking care of their children. I, I think marriage adds stability to uh, to the upbringing of a child, obviously. But even if they were cohabitating, even if the mother's cohabitating with the father and they're not married, um, that's still better. And, and, and in fact, that's what you often see or you see more often in um, uh, among Hispanics and particularly among Hispanic immigrants. Um, the out of wedlock birth rate uh, among these two groups isn't that there's a lot of similarity there. It's pretty close. Um, Mm. but what you see, uh, among Hispanics is that, uh, the father is there raising the child. Uh, marriage typically comes later. Uh, so they're doing it in a different order, but you still have the child being raised by his mother and father, even if they aren't married for part of that upbringing in the black community. That is not what you, that is not what you see. Um, and, and so that is that is the difference. Um, so yes, marriage would be ideal, but even cohabitating parents uh, would be better than what you're seeing in a lot of these communities, which are which are a single head of a female head of households raising raising children. And and um, you know, <laughs> marriage. Uh, I've, I've often said um, people who want to cite racism as an explanation for all of this stuff. In America, the, the black poverty rate is about uh, a third uh, higher for, uh, uh, than it is among whites. But among black married couples, Megan, uh, the poverty rate is in the single digits and has been uh, for more than 30 years. So, you know, is, <laughs> is black poverty a function of racism or a function of family formation? 
I mean, if you're a racist, why why do you care if, if the black person is married or not? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm only going to so, keep so, the so, single ones down. Yeah, I mean, so so this breakdown of the um, of, of the black nuclear family, this disintegration of the black nuclear family that we've seen, is causing all kinds of other problems, uh, not, not just violent crime. It's going to affect uh, the education. Of, of that child, um, uh, whether the child uh, grows up with the resources the child needs in terms of income, household income, and so forth, um, a, a lot a lot goes wrong when the when the when the family starts to break down, um, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 violent crime is just one manifestation of of that. And so the government the government set this off how right things are going. I mean, it's not exactly swimmingly. It's not like the people are dying for a return to the 1940s and 50s when it comes to. Um, race relations in this country, but when it comes to government policies meant to improve the back, the black experience, you you're you posit that we really we started something very dangerous and it's only gotten worse back in the sixties. Yes, I, I think uh, we we expanded the welfare state in an effort to help um, uh, in, in the war on poverty. Um, we redistributed wealth. Uh, we 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 paid. Uh, uh, women uh, uh, that had children out of wedlock and said, we will continue to pay you so long as we don't see the father snooping around. Uh, That that put in place perverse incentives. Um, uh, And and so uh, that's sort of emblematic of what a lot of these great society programs did. They put in place perverse incentives in the name of helping uh, blacks that ended up hurting uh, blacks and and what it what it, and it hurt because what it did was it it, it interfered with the sort of um, self development that has to take place within a group within a culture uh, and there's no there's no end run around that um, you you can't replace a father with a government check um, uh, a group has to develop a work ethic if it's going to lift itself out of poverty and keep itself out of poverty. Uh, and, and to the extent that you, you, you pay people not to work or, or the benefits you give them uh, amount to more than they can make uh, in, 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 the, uh, in the economy by getting a job, uh, you're, you're, you're interfering with, with the development of that, of that work ethic. And, th- and that is what a lot of these government programs, again, well-intentioned, ultimately ended up doing. And so for, for some groups, um, you go through some hard times, you temporarily go on welfare, get back on your feet and you'd move off. But for, for blacks, welfare became sort of a lure and a trap. And you saw generation after generation after generation of welfare dependent families. Um, and, 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 and that is, that is what we're, we're, we're living with. Um, we're living with today. So we've had welfare reform, right? We had that under Bill Clinton. How have things changed? I think welfare reform uh, did what it was intended to do. We saw um, uh, poverty rates fall, uh, even for for single moms, um, and and that was a good thing. Um, a lot of it, we sort of started uh, picking away at these reforms uh, later on, particularly during the Great Recession under Obama, with the extension of of not only uh, uh, jobless benefits but um, uh, other uh, cash or, or in-kind benefits that were given out, food stamps and so forth. Uh, the thinking back then under Obama was this will just be temporary. 
Um, but it was it was not temporary. States kept them in place much longer than they needed to. Once again, putting in place those perverse in, in incentives. Uh, we're, we're kind of seeing a little bit of it today with the COVID relief, where where um, mm-hmm. you have employers who who can't find workers because those workers are being um, are receiving supplemental jobless benefits uh, to stay home, and 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 they're receiving more to stay home than the job pays, and the and the and the employers can't compete with the amount of money right. they're receiving uh, in benefits. So that's why virtually all the red states now are rejecting the money. Yeah. And 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 even and even the Biden administration I think is coming around to acknowledging it, which is why they announced that the, these uh extra benefits are going to end in the fall. Um but yeah, incentives incentives matter. Um and that's, you know, uh, that's always been the case. Up next, if Jason Riley were to become president in 2024, what would he do to change our country's situation to help Black Americans in a way that might actually work as opposed to these great society programs and so on. We'll ask him in 60 seconds. So if you become president, you know, in 2024, which is my dream, <laughs> um, what what do you do to change, you know, how does government at this point help the Black family flourish? And, and I mean genuinely help as opposed to the fake help that got us into this trouble. Well, it's to, to me, and, and, and this goes back to the title of the book you mentioned, it's not about what the government needs to start doing so much as what I think the government needs to stop doing. And it needs to stop doing things that we know uh, don't work. Lifting the minimum wage is going to keep, uh, it's going to price certain groups of people uh, out of the labor force because they become too expensive to hire. Um, uh, occupational licensing, uh, which says, you know, you have to jump through this hoop and this hoop and this hoop to, um, to, to start a taxi service or to start a hair braiding uh, 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 shop. Um, uh, these, these, aren't, these aren't helpful. These, these, this, 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 this is uh, holding back would-be entrepreneurs who can't afford to get these licensing uh, or, or, or don't know how to go about acquiring the right credentials in order to, uh, to jump through these hoops. Um, and, and, and then I, I really focus, I would really focus on education. You know, stop keeping these kids trapped in, in, in schools that are failing them. Um, we, we have education models out there that we know work, particularly for low-income minorities, namely charter schools, um, voucher programs, tax credits, and so forth. Um, give, give these families access uh, to these school reforms. Uh, stop, stop assigning them to schools based on their zip code. Um, uh, I, I think uh, education is going to be the key for a lot of these families. And, and, and unfortunately, um, education is so political that you have the adults who run the system putting their own interest ahead of the actual kids. And, and, you know, this sort of, and I'm hopeful that the COVID experience will cause people to rethink just how much power uh, our teachers unions have over public education. We learn that they control education and by extension uh, can control our lives. If our kids can't, mm-hmm. can't go to school because the teachers refuse to go to work. And, I, and I'm hoping that people might rethink this, this power dynamic in public education. Um, it's crazy when because... you look at what they're doing, right? Like they, they wouldn't open up the schools. The teachers unions would not listen to the science or the data. They cared only about themselves and not about the children at all. And, and meanwhile, this was disproportionately hurting black and brown children who, yeah. you know, oftentimes were in areas that couldn't afford private tutors, you know, and so on and so forth. So they're stuck there falling behind the learning curve while Randy Weingarten is lecturing us on systemic racism. It's like, well, why don't you do something that might actually help these kids, like get your teachers 
back in the classroom to teach them, but they, yeah. they wouldn't. And on top of that, they oppose charter schools. They oppose, oppose vouchers. They want these kids to be hostage to the zip code in which they live, no matter how crappy the schools are. And then they go to the Biden administration and just say, we need more money. It's because these schools are underfunded. If you just cared about minority children, you would provide more money to the school systems in places like Chicago and Baltimore and so on to get better teachers and better facilities. And then they would do better. The Biden administration might be uh, the most hostile to school reform of any administration we've ever had. Um, Mm -hmm. Even uh, the Obama administration was quite sympathetic to charter schools. Uh, Biden is under pressure um, uh, to to put a moratorium on the creation of of new charter schools. Uh, I don't know whether uh, he's going to give in to that pressure, but he's under a lot of heat to 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 do that. This this could be uh, quite bad. We we could take a huge step in the wrong direction in terms of educational alternatives under Biden because of the ascendance of these progressives and their influence in the Democratic Party. Um, and, and, and as you said, the, the kids who need this the most are, are the low-income minority students. And of course, those, those are the ones, according to the polls, who are most in favor of it. So this is once again another example of elites um, claiming to represent the interest of these low-income minorities when in fact um, they're simply representing their own interests. Even today, you have groups like the NAACP now opposed to charter schools, even though most Blacks overwhelmingly support charter schools. And the reason what? the NAACP is about? opposed, well, they take money from the teachers unions. The unions uh, are, are, are fun, groups like the NAACP. And uh, the NAACP is therefore reluctant to cross the teachers unions, even if it means selling out, selling out low-income Blacks. Let me ask you the basic dumb questions just so you can walk us through it. Why, why don't the teachers unions want charter schools? Because they're not unionized. This whole debate would go away if the charter school said, you can, you can organize our workforce. This is all about the teachers unions wanting uh, a monopoly on, on education um, for their members. Uh, and, and, and so that's, that's what this is about. Uh, most, most, most charter schools are not unionized, and that is why the teachers unions oppose them. It's really that another simple. dumb question, because I know you you're an expert on this. How does a charter school start? Like what happens in a, in a city like New York, where you have public schooling, which in too many pockets is just terrible? How does what how, how does a charter school get born and start attracting people? Well, it varies. It varies by state. And there are um, uh, each state has set up a process by uh, by which uh, some org- some somebody can can authorize a charter school. Sometimes it's a university system. Sometimes it's a board of education at the state level or the local level, but there are these organizing entities that are, I'm sorry, these authorization entities, and you apply to them and you say, uh, I want to start a charter school. Um, in many states, there's a, there's a cap on the number that can be started. So you have to get in your application, you start your school, and then there's a time limit on it. You, you, um, it's not an open-ended authorization. You have a certain period of time and then you have, it has to be renewed. And, and that's how you, you're held accountable. If, if you're failing the kids, if your kids are not doing well on tests, if their attendance is poor, if, they're, you know, if there are problems with the charter school, your charter uh, won't be renewed. And, and, that's, and that's the difference between uh, uh, the charter system and the traditional public school system, which can just continue to fail generation after generation after generation of students, and that school will never close. And the unions will do nothing about closing it because even if a school is failing, children, it's still providing good paying jobs for adults. Yeah. So that school is going to stay cashes. open. So what about 
My observation here in New York at the charter schools tend to have a lot of very high performing minority students in them. And they're a godsend. And you have families who are very, very engaged parents who are very into their kids' education, who, you know, they're very grateful that their kids are in these charter schools. But is it, does it tend to be a more minority population in the charter schools in, in the, is that just a New York City thing? No, it's not. It's not. Um, uh, th- that, that, that is uh, the case in, in many charter schools around the country um, uh, that uh, minorities uh, tend to, to attend them. And, and, and many of these schools set up in, in minority communities to provide those communities uh, with an alternative to, uh, to their traditional public school, which in, in many cases is, is, is doing a poor job. And then, of course, the, the, the charter school gets attacked for being segregated, racially yeah. segregated. <laughs> it sets up a school in a black community. Black people come. And then the accusation is, oh, oh this, is a, this is segregated schooling. So, um, so they can't win. But, um, but yes, they, they do. And, and it gives the lie, uh, you know, to, to, the, to the claim that, um, uh, well, two things it, it, it addresses if, when you look at the racial makeup of these schools. It it's becomes clear that black kids don't need to be sitting next to white kids to learn, and 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 uh, uh, these schools are overwhelmingly minority, and, and and in many cases, the ones in New York City, particularly, are, are outperforming the lilius white suburbs on on standardized exactly. tests. And um uh, and and yet we 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 spend all of our time uh, discussing uh, whether uh, schools are, are are racially balanced enough, and mm-hmm. and, and and you know aesthetically that might be what you want to see but whether it, it is a priority for learning i think that that is is determined in a demonstrably false uh based on what charter charter schools are doing one of the things that's interesting about it to me is in your book you talk about uh, this is chapter two culture matters and you talk about um how in in some schools there's there's a negative association with talking white or acting white, which can be associated with good grades and proper English and so on. And you, you take a look at the uh, this study out of Shaker Heights, Ohio in the late 90s by John Ogbu, professor of anthropology at U- University of California, Berkeley, talked about the black-white achievement gap and took a hard look at how in this nice suburb, there was still a stigma against getting good grades amongst a lot of the black students because that was associated with white behavior. So to me, it you look at these black charter schools or predominantly minority charter schools where that's not an issue. The, these are black students who are gunners. You know, they, they want great grades and their parents want great grades and they're being well supported. And you point out, you know, in that, in that part of your book, that parental involvement is huge too, black or white parental involvement you know, staying on your kids. That'll help a lot. So you've got that in these charters. You would think any sane person. And I know, I mean, I don't, who knows whether Biden's truly ideologically driven at this point. I, I, I hesitate to say, but you'd think somebody like Biden would say, why on earth would I want to stifle that? Right. But Biden is a politician, just like you know, Obama was a politician. Barack Obama spent eight years in office trying to shut down the D.C. voucher program. And you go, why? It's popular among blacks. It's getting good results. Graduation rates are much higher at the DC, in, the, in the D.C. voucher program schools than, than in, in D.C. schools in general. Why just explain what that did. What did the D.C. voucher program do? Oh, the, 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 it's a federal program that was set up under George W. Bush. And it's just a, it, it gives, uh, provides vouchers for low-income uh, uh, kids in, in, in Washington, D.C. to attend private schools. And, and, and um, 
The unions, of course, hate it again because many of these private schools are not uh, uh, unionized, and um, and and so they they wanted to shut down the program, and 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 they give a lot of money to Barack Obama, and he was carrying water for them, so he too called for shutting down the program. So you, you, politicians, you know, are, are putting. Uh, we we can't assume that that the interest of of the politician aligns with the interest of kids. Uh, the, the the politician is looking out for his own interest, and 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 if you're a democratic politician, um, you you can't ignore the teachers unions. They they are a, a, an integral part of getting you elected and reelected, and and supporting uh, your causes while in office. You just can't ignore them. They're too powerful, and that's what happened with uh, Biden and Obama. But it's not like the public schools are going to go out of business, though. You know, so what are they like there? I, I see they're a little worried about some competition. These are these are tend to be great schools, which, which people want to go to. And but like what they'll say is, oh, it's not fair to the students who are left behind. You know, that the, the, the loss of resources, the loss of tax dollars, the loss of uh, other students who you know might be uplifting and might challenge them. I don't but like the, 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 they have a lock on the market. If you're a public school teacher, the, the public school's not going away. Well, they, they do say that. They, they, they accuse the charter schools of what they call creaming, taking the best students. Um, the, the problem with that argument, Megan, is that um, charter schools use a lottery to, um, to admit students. You're, you're, you're admitted by chance. And, and of course, far more people, just like with any lottery, far more people um, uh, uh, apply to the lottery than are admitted. So, um, so most of these uh, motivated kids in the traditional public schools that want to go to charters don't get in. So the traditional public schools have the vast majority of motivated kids in our public school system <laughs> because they can't all go to the charter schools. So the question becomes, right. what do the traditional public schools do with all these motivated kids? And they're right. failing them. It's the schools. It's the schools. It's not the kids. And this idea that, oh, the charters get the results because they're creaming the best kids. No, most of those best kids are still in traditional public schools because there aren't enough charter schools to accommodate. The wait list for charter schools in New York City is something like 50,000 kids long. Oh, my god! Nationwide, it's around a half million. So th- there aren't enough uh, charter schools to take all these highly motivated kids that the, that, uh, the traditional public schools claim that they're losing to, uh, to charters. You know, in the same way that we talked about with the police, they defund the police to the detriment of the black community. It's not what black people want. It certainly doesn't help them because they tend to be the murder victims um, when these murder rates go up at a disproportionate level. And in the same way that 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 dynamic exists um, and, 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 you know, you've got this this problem with the schools, like hurting black kids in the name of helping black kids when it comes to, oh, no, no charters and the school. We have to be deferential to the teachers unions. That's what's happening now, in my view, with critical race theory, right? Like we're going to we're going to racialize everything in an effort to promote diversity and equity and inclusion. But really, every day they're driving wedges between students of different races in schools that I that did not exist. There's no question that the kids were getting along. They weren't looking at race. And these teachers, these so-called well-meaning teachers have decided, let me let me help you. Let me help you be more inclusive. And, and promote more equity by pointing out which one of you is the oppressor, which one of you is the oppressed, which one of you has no natural advantages, you know, has has mountains that you cannot overcome without the help of mighty whitey. Right? Like, yeah. And it's that's why it's so damaging. Right. It's like, again, the quote help, which is nothing but nothing. Well, of the kind. This is another an example of of uh, elites uh, pushing something on behalf of uh, 
uh, of the black masses, so to speak, to use a dated term. Uh, cr critical race theory really amounts to a sort of fancy argument for racial preferences. That's that's all it all it really is. Um, it started in 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 the legal community, academic uh, legal community, back in the in the seventies. It, it was it was black academics making an argument for racial preferences for themselves for themselves. This, this is about self-interest of black elites. That that's what this is, has always uh, been about. And and you know to the extent that it stayed on college campuses, uh, not too many people were worried about it. But now, as as you say, it's it's seeped off. Now it's it, it's 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 crept off campus. It's on a you know, it's in our diversity training at work. It's, it's, and, and now it's in our elementary schools uh, via the 1619 project. And I find it as disturbing, if not more so than, than, than you, um, this, this, this idea that, um, that, that, that you can put slavery at the center of America's founding. Um, it's, it's, it's just so, so nonsensical. I mean, slavery might be the least remarkable thing about American history. Sl slavery existed for thousands of years before any Europeans uh, came to the Americas. Uh, it's existed all over the world, down through history, and just about every society that we know of. It's, it still exists today in places like yep. Sudan and, and parts of Niger Nigeria. Uh, it, it, again, slavery might be the, the the least remarkable thing about American history. What's remarkable about American history is emancipation, not right. slavery. And then this idea that 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 these folks, uh, these critical race theorists, would try and put slavery at at the center of of, of America's founding, and and somehow depict America as uniquely evil because of its slave past, is just nonsense. And that is what we're, we're teaching our kids. And suggest we've made little to no progress. Oh, yeah. Well, you have to. You, you have to pretend that, that um, uh, everything, uh, all, all of these disparities that we see today are a direct result of slavery and, and Jim Crow. And, and, and you have to ignore everything that has gone on uh, since the end of Jim Crow. Um, you have to ignore the progress that blacks are making during Jim Crow. I mentioned uh, the, the crime uh, uh, decline among blacks during that period, but black, uh, blacks were entering the skilled professions in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, they were come, becoming doctors and lawyers and, 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 and scientists and, and architects and accountants and teachers at unprecedented rates during the 1940s and 50s. They were increasing their years of schooling, uh, both in absolute terms and, and relative to whites. Uh, their incomes uh, were, were, were climbing faster than white incomes in the 1940s and 50s. You have to ignore all of that history um, if you're a critical race theorist because uh, all the disparities we see today are a direct result of, of, of slavery and Jim Crow. And, and if you point out that, that, that Blacks were making faster progress during Jim Crow than they were in the post-60s period. Uh, it sort of upends uh, all of your claims about this direct link between uh, uh, slavery and, 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 and Black underperformance today. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it takes quite a leap of faith and logic um, to push this, this theory, but it, it's, it's, uh, 
it's nonsense, and 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 I, and I was okay with the nonsense as long as it was at, at, at you know at, at some seminar at, at Oberlin. But now that it's going to be in our, <laughs> our K through twelve system, public school system, um, I, I hope people wake up to this and, and push back at it pretty hard. Um, your wife, who is equally brilliant, uh, she's she writes for a variety of places. She's an AEI uh, fellow, American Enterprise Institute, and she writes for Newsweek among other places. Naomi Schaefer Riley, and she wrote a piece last September talking about how your kids, you're, she's white, you're black, so it's mixed race kids. You guys are, you have them at Rye Country Day School, which is very good school. They had like two years ago, I think they had eight students go to Harvard. I mean, this is a very, very good elite school, private school up in Westchester. And she was writing about how you're, you know, I think you have a son and a daughter? Yes. Okay. And do you have three kids? We have three. I have t- uh, two daughters and a son. Okay. How she, she was saying, okay, Suddenly we get presented with diversity, equity, inclusion uh, everywhere. And she said that our kids were immediately offered the chance to join a variety of clubs, including a diversity club, a students of color club, girls of color club, in which older girls will mentor the younger ones. Parents received numerous emails about these clubs, and our kids were invited on a number of occasions to join, including by their teachers. They did not, she said. And she said, aside from politics, we found ourselves underwhelmed by some of the academic rigor of this particular school, notwithstanding its reputation. The students were reading few books, writing assignments that were rare. My daughter spent some portion of math class each week on meditation exercises. And when we asked at my daughter's request whether she couldn't be challenged more in English or receive some extra work in math that would allow her to move into a higher group the following year, uh, she says, we were met with blank stares. The teachers and administrators expressed concerns such assignments might cause too much stress, damage her self-esteem, or upset her life balance. Our meeting with the math teacher ended with her encouraging our daughter to attend her regular gatherings for girls of color Ah, to face. I mean, like I'm slapping my forehead, Jason, everything, everything has to go back to skin color. Yeah. The, these, um, the, these schools, they're, 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 they're social justice boot camps, Megan. They're not Mm. primarily interested in, in, in reading and math and which, which is odd for, uh, you know, most eighth graders in America can't read or do math at grade level. Don't you think we should be focused on on correcting that before we turn them into social justice warriors at so the age true. of ten? I mean, I just, I just as, as a as, in terms of priorities, uh, I, I'd be willing to cut a deal with the with the social justice folks and say. When you know seventy percent of, of of grade school kids can read and do math at grade level, we can have a discussion about uh, uh, enhancing the curriculum in, in, in ways that you think might be productive. But but just get 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 us to seventy percent, <laughs> mm, right? It seems reasonable. Friends of friends moved their kids from these New York City private schools down to Florida during the pandemic and put them in public school, and they were horrified at how how behind they were. Because they're spending 40% of their time on diversity, equity, and inclusion in math class, as opposed to adding, subtracting, and multiplying fraction fractions, they yeah. got down to a more red state and found out they were not cutting it because those kids are not focused on all of this divisive nonsense. And all of this diversity, inclusion stuff, it's, it's, it's just fancy language for teaching these kids to blame all of their problems on other people. And, and I don't know uh, that, that that has a good history of turning people into productive citizens. Um, uh, that is not what we want to instill in our children. 
even even the language we use today about we don't talk about self betterment and 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 and, and pulling yourself up and, and and those types of things. We talk, uh, you know, privilege, uh, advantaged, disadvantaged. It's almost a, a passive language that we use that that uh, uh, people have no agency. They're, they're just. Uh, uh, what happens to them is inevitable due to systemic this or societal this. It's it's, I I, I find the even the language being used um, uh, disturbing. Um, but but that's what 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 these kids are being taught. They're 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 they're, they're not being taught how to think. They're being taught what to think. Uh, they're being taught that 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 anyone who disagrees with them uh, shouldn't shouldn't be challenged, but should be silenced. Um, and, so and that true. is that that is not what education should be about. And, 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 and that's been a problem on our college campuses for a long time. And it's disturbing to see it trickling down into our K through 12 system. Yeah. I mean, at least when they waited till college, they might have the chance of developing how to think prior to getting there. Now yeah. it's it's all indoctrination. And, and yeah. not a week goes by now, thankfully, uh, that you don't see another parent or teacher find the courage to come out against this insanity in a public forum. This week, it was Dana Stangle Plow from Dwight Englewood School in Englewood, New Jersey, very nice suburb just across the George Washington Bridge from New York City. And she, um, she came out, this was released by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism Fair. Um, they, they published her video, and here's just a clip of what this teacher said after leaving. Today, I am resigning from a job that I love. My name is Dana Stangle Plow. I became an English teacher at Dwight Englewood School seven years ago because as a parent, I loved how the school both nurtured and challenged my own children. But over the past few years, the school has embraced an ideology that is damaging to our students' intellectual and emotional growth, an ideology that requires students to see themselves not as individuals, but as representatives of either an oppressor or oppressed group. This theoretical framework pervades every division of Dwight Englewood as the singular way of seeing the world. As a result, students now arrive in my classroom accepting ideology simply as fact. I've seen up close how this hinders their ability to read, write, and think. They've become obsessed with power hierarchies. I teach students who recoil from a poem because it was written by a man. I teach students who approach texts in search of the oppressor, who see iniquities in texts that have nothing to do with power. This ideology limits students' ability to observe and engage with the full fabric of human experience in our literature. In my professional opinion as an educator, the school is failing to encourage healthy habits of mind, essential for growth, such as intellectual curiosity, humility, honesty, reason, and the capacity to consider multiple perspectives and weigh competing ideas. I've heard from students who want to ask a question, but stop out of fear. I've heard from students who don't participate in discussions for fear of being ostracized. One student didn't want to develop her personal essay about an experience she had in another country because she was worried that it might mean she was, without even realizing it, racist. In her fear, she actually stopped herself from thinking. The very definition of self-censorship. Mm. I mean, we've heard this. They recoil from text because written by a man, right? You can't teach history. You can't celebrate Beethoven. You certainly can't celebrate the founding fathers because they're the wrong gender and the wrong skin color and didn't behave perfectly according to 2021 standards. But it's it's so much deeper and more problematic than that. It is. And I I think we need to reach a point where voices like that aren't aren't just trickling out every other day or so. 
we need tens of thousands of voices like that. There, there really needs to be a massive pushback. And I've, I've been waiting for the dam to break. Um, and, and I'm, I'm kind of surprised that it hasn't already. Um, uh, I, she, what she was saying, countless people are thinking, but afraid to say. I mean, it's sort of like the 1619 Project stuff. You had a few historians come out, you know, James McPherson, Sean Wallens, Gordon Wood, a few others. But it's, this should have been every credible historian in America should have denounced this project. Mm-hmm. And, and they're afraid. They've been cowed. Nicole Hannah-Jones, I mean, th- th- there, there have been countless books written about America's founding, Megan. None of them by Nicole Hannah-Jones. And and yet she is going to lead a project to rewrite American history. And, 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 and the most prominent historians uh, in America are just going to sit silently by because they are afraid of her Twitter feed. This is, this is ridiculous. And and so I I think we need, uh, you know, 10,000 more voices like this woman out there. And I'm, and I'm waiting for people to, um, to, to, to come forward. And, and because I know that she speaks for a lot of people who are afraid to speak up themselves. That's right. But you know, part of the messaging of CRT is that in particular white people, even though it's not all white people who object to this need to be quiet, just be quiet. As, as the comedian Ryan Long said when he came on, on our show, the messaging is, um, you sit there and be quiet, but it's not my job to educate you. So it's like, mm, yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it, and that's part of the other rewriting of history going on with, um, with the 1619 Project stuff, ignoring the role that whites played in the civil rights movement, in the anti-slavery movement. Uh, I, I'm, for one, am, am quite happy that they didn't shut up back then. <laughs> right, because their voices were quite helpful in uh, in changing the course and direction of this country. Up next, Jason has now literally written the book on Thomas Sowell, one of the greatest thinkers of our time. I mean, certainly in modern day America in the last hundred years. So why isn't he a household name? There, there are some sad but real reasons for it, and we'll talk about it. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to bring you a feature we have here on the MK Show called Thanks But No Thanks. In this case, we are saying thanks, but no thanks to anti-racist dinner parties. How'd you like to pay $5,000 to learn just how racist you really are? If you would, then race to dinner might be the thing for you. There is an incredible recent piece in The Cut that details this organization run by two activists, Regina Jackson and Syra Rao. See, they gather together eight white women at one of the women's houses for a dinner party. Oh, sounds nice, dinner party, that's fun. Well, at this dinner party, the hosts, Jackson and Rao, will facilitate a discussion about race over dinner. You know that's not gonna go well. So what exactly does it entail? Well, they will press their guests on the most racist thing they have done recently. If the guests cannot come up with something, they will be told that, quote, not knowing is classic white behavior. At a recent dinner party in January, Jackson and Rao say they were asked, Do you see any difference between us and the people that stormed the Capitol? To which the hosts of this dinner party replied, no. For this self-flagellation, the dinner party will cost you $5,000. That is double from where they started just a couple of years ago. They also have gotten a book deal out of this for a book titled White Women. Everything you already know about your own racism 
and how to do better. <laughs> it includes giving them a bunch of money. Rich white women paying thousands of dollars to be told just how racist these two gals think they are? Thanks, but no thanks. I think people are ashamed. They're being sort of reminded of their white guilt. And so they're, they feel like saying anything just confirms, as Robin D'Angelo would suggest, their white fragility, their, their racial bias, their, their inherent bias, right? Even if I don't know it's there, it's there. Trust me, it's there. And, and it's somehow positioning yourself as being not an ally to black people, which is the last thing you want, right? Like your, your instincts are to be supportive and helpful and open-minded to problems. And, and, and now the messaging is, it's almost unsolvable. Any pushback at all makes you part of the problem. Even on crazy stuff, like, you know, it's not OK to to say the country was founded to preserve slavery. That's that is ahistorical. We know that. But even pushing back against Nicole Hannah-Jones makes you sound like a racist when she got her position at UNC. It, the story was but she was denied tenure. It's like, no, she she got a five year paid position, notwithstanding the fact that she spews a factual, non-factual nonsense. That's a huge victory for her. The story is not that she didn't get tenure. It's that who's hiring her to teach history since she doesn't seem to understand it. I uh, just wrote a book uh, about uh, an economist named named Thomas Sowell. And one of the reasons I wanted to write the book and felt that he deserved uh, more attention is because he is something that is uh, increasingly rare these days, which is an honest intellectual, someone who is not cowed by uh, the social media hordes and the Nicole Hannah-Jones types and hasn't been uh, over his, you know, 50 plus year uh, career as a public intellectual. He is someone who has followed the facts where they lead, uh, told the truth, uh, even when it was politically incorrect, even when it was unpopular. And, and that's what there is a dearth of today. You should not distinguish yourself as an intellectual simply by being straightforward and honest. And yet mm. that's how he's done it. Because there are so many others out there who who are more interested in being popular, more interested in being politically correct, and Seoul has put truth above popularity. And 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 this is a perfect example of of why we need more more intellectuals out there like him to push back at this nonsense. He's amazingly brilliant. It's amazing to me that he's still on this earth. That we still have him. You know, access to Thomas Seoul is still possible, and I would love to have it at some point. Um, but yeah, you've just written the book Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell, accompanied by an hour long documentary, which I recommend to everybody. And it's narrated by you. And you've got different interviews with different people talking about his influence and how he became who he became. He is the example in bootstrap, you know, non-victimhood. Um, I'm going to let facts, reason and logic dictate my decisions. And you you talk in the book and, and in the documentary about how he, this guy had zero advantages he had in, in his upbringing. He, he, but yet he wound up at the University of Chicago. He started off as a Marxist. He actually remained a Marxist after studying under Milton Freedom, Friedman at University of Chicago. But once he got immersed in the federal government, the Department of Labor, and opened his mind to fact and logic and what data was telling him, he was cured of his Marxism and really has spent the rest of his days trying to just be factual with people, even if it didn't curry him any favor, which it didn't with these so-called elites. Yes, that's a, that's an excellent summary of, uh, of, of Sowell's career. He, um, you know, he, he's someone who, who w- was born with a lot of disadvantages, 
during the Great Depression in the Jim Crow South. He was orphaned as a child, uh, raised by a distant relative who, who moved the family to Harlem when he was nine years old. And that's where he was raised. But he dropped out of, of high school. He had a pretty tumultuous home life. He never graduated from high school. Um, uh, left home at the age of 17, uh, joined the Marines, uh, then sort of started to turn his life around. And uh, thanks to the GI Bill, he was able to afford to go to college. And, and, um, but he got quite a late start. You know, he didn't even graduate with an undergraduate degree until he was 28 years old. He didn't write mm. his first book until he was 40. And you think about how productive he's been. Uh, it's remarkable right. how late a start he got. But he's always said, you know, uh, I had to take advantage of the opportunities that were there. And that's what I tried to do. And that is what he's encouraged other people to do, to take advantage of the opportunities. And of course, there are far more opportunities uh, for, for Blacks, for minorities uh, today than, than when Tom Sowell was, was growing up. And, and the idea that, that kids today are being taught to, to uh, blame their problems on other people uh, instead of taking advantage of the opportunities they have is, is just shameful. Well, and he one of the things he takes aim, aim at is the minimum wage, saying, oh, yeah, sure, okay, minimum wage. We're going to lift people up. We're going to pay them a, a, quote, living wage. And then, oh, wait, they may lose their jobs completely. The jobs may go away altogether. You don't hear that from people like Biden who are pushing that now. And yeah. on affirmative action, same thing. Yeah, um, this is the, the minimum wage issue is, is what... Uh, began to turn Seoul away from his socialism and his Marxism when he was working in government for the Department of Labor uh, in the early 1960s. Uh, he was studying the minimum wages effects in, uh, in Puerto Rico and, um, and noticed the, the harm, the employment, uh, it was damage it was, it was doing to employment. So yes, if you have a job and the minimum wages goes up, uh, you'll get a raise, uh, provided you keep that job. Uh, and keep the same number of hours you were working before. Uh, but how many other people don't get hired because the minimum wage now makes them too expensive to hire? How many people lose their job because the minimum wage has made them uh, too expensive to employ? So, so there are trade-offs, is, 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 is Tom's argument. And what, what he took away from that experience is that government policies um, don't always have the intended effect and, and that those policies can continue uh, indefinitely, even if they're doing great harm, because the government has its own agenda. Um, and, mm -hmm. and, and Seoul began to reevaluate the, the, the benevolence of government in general, not just on minimum wage, but on a whole host of issues. And you're right about affirmative action. He's um, uh, studied this empirically and in depth for decades, and not only here in the U.S., but around the world, he studied the issue. And, um, and you know, we, we, we have uh, uh, now about four days, uh, four decades of, of, of experience with affirmative action. And, and we have some natural experiments that went on out there, like at the University of California, back in the mid 90s, they ended uh, race-based admissions uh, in the University of California system. And after that ended, um, black graduation rates went up, just as Seoul had predicted they would. And not only uh, 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 up overall, but up in the more difficult disciplines of math and science and okay. engineering. And th now there it is. That because he argued students who get into these elite schools, thanks to affirmative action, often wind up, quote, mismatched. We have a soundbite about him talking out about MIT. The average black student at MIT is in the bottom 10% of M MIT students in math, but he is in the top 90% of all American students in math. 
Something like one-fourth of all the black students going to MIT do not graduate. You're talking about a pool of people whom you are artificially turning into failures by mismatching them with the school. He, he, he predicted this. He said that um, this program that had, had been put in place to increase the, the ranks of the black middle class had in practice uh, resulted in fewer black professionals than we would have had in the absence of the policy. So, um, uh, uh, you know, you know he, he called this a long, a long time ago, and, um, and he's been right uh, about affirmative action, about uh, any number of issues that he's studied. And, and, and so I wanted to, to write the book to sort of give, give Saul his due. I think it's shameful that, that people like ta Coates or Ibram Kendi um, are better known than, than Thomas Saul even though he's, he's written know. circles around folks like that, Cornell West, Henry Louis Gates, and so forth, maybe circles around all of them put together. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he's, he's not as well known as they are, and he should be. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to do the, the, the documentary and, um, uh, and the book. And, and, and Soul's writings are not only, you know, more broad-based um, in, in terms of the, the, the topics he's covered over the decades, the rigor and depth of his thinking on so many issues uh, far surpasses uh, those other individuals I just named. And, and so I think he is a, uh, a voice that, that, that needs to be part of, of, of the conversation when we're talking about inequality and, and social justice and, and all the rest, because he, is, he has been thinking and writing about these issues uh, for a long time. So why is that? Because I'll tell you, I had an argument with somebody, a white guy, um, about Thomas Sowell. And I was saying, why isn't he taught in every university in America? This is one of the most profound, brilliant thinkers we have alive today. And his response was, because his ideas are outdated. That, you know, he's, he's old school. The guy's pushing 100. I don't know, he's 94, whatever he is. And, you know, the Ibram X. Kendi's of the world are more relevant, more modern, and sort of have a better finger on the pulse of where we are in 2021. You should have asked him which particular ideas of Tom's are, are supposedly outdated. I'd be curious to know what, what he had in mind. But the, the, the reason that Seoul isn't better known, I believe, is, is because, um, well, to use today's parlance, he was canceled. He was canceled uh, a long time ago when he began writing about these uh, racial controversies. Uh, in your audience, you know, Tom, Tom is, is, a, is an economist by training, and economic mm-hmm. history is his real discipline. Uh, Tom uh, studied you know, people like Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and David Ricardo and the sort of classical liberal economist, and, and that was his main discipline when he started out as an academic in the 1960s, and that is what he taught, uh, history of economic thought and the history of ideas. Tom only started writing about racial controversies uh, in the 1970s, and that's when he got in trouble with, with black elites uh, and the civil rights movement leadership that uh, pushed back at what he was saying and effectively went to the media and said, this is not someone who should be taken seriously. He does not speak mm. for, for black people. And um, and they canceled him. These elites, uh, white and black, are the ones that con- largely control the media. They control academia. They decide who wins the intellectual prizes and awards and so forth. And Seoul has refused to play footsie with them. And I think it's cost him in terms of prestige and notoriety. Um, but again, he has not uh, been interested in, in, um, in, in, in playing those games. He's been far more interested. And again, just, just doing the research, following the data where it, where it leads, and reporting the findings, even when they're unpopular. It's reminding me of something, I think you wrote this in one of, in your book, um, about you, you were taking issue with President Obama, then President Obama praising 
Jay-Z and Lil Wayne. And Lil Wayne was imprisoned on, on gun and drug charges while Obama was praising him. Why not take a moment to praise Thomas Sowell? Why not hold up somebody like that uh, for people to emulate or whose ideas they should consider as opposed to somebody who's sitting in prison on gun charges at the moment you decide to highlight him? What, what, why did George Floyd get a state funeral? I mean, oh. this, this idea that the black thug is the authentic black is a problem we've had for decades, Megan. And it's put out there by blacks and whites alike. And, and so, yes, you know, rappers who have made uh, millions of dollars uh, talking about degrading women and degrading other black people, uh, homophobic, uh, uh, sexist, uh, racist, uh, anti-Semitic remarks are celebrated. Celebrated. Uh, glorifying violence, uh, sex. Uh, celebrated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The president brags about them having their music on his phone. I mean, that's, that's, that's where it's really screwed up. It, it, it's, it's really, really screwed up. And, and not only that, our kids see this. Kids see this. What, what mm-hmm. kind of example is Obama setting there? That, that's my, I mean, you know, there, are, there are plenty of Black people, musicians that he could be praising, uh, you know, I, <laughs> that, that don't go there. Um, And and yet he chooses to glorify thuggery. Big finish next. Don't go away. Obama's been all over the board on race issues. Sometimes he tries to act like the great healer. And then he has this pernicious tendency to stoke the flames in his sort of measured delivery. You know, so it's like doesn't sound so incendiary like a Trump, but he does stoke the flames. And he was sort of dumping all over people's concerns about critical race theory in an interview he just gave. I think we've got that. Listen. You would think with all the public policy debates that are taking place right now that, you know, the Republican Party would uh, be engaged in a significant debate about uh, how are we going to deal with the economy and what are we going to do about climate change and what are we going to do about, lo and behold, the, the single most uh, important issue to them apparently right now is critical race theory. Who knew that 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 was the threat to our republic? What do you make of that? Well, I myself have wondered why the Republican Party has decided um, to place more emphasis on the culture war than on uh, economics. Um, And I don't know if this is a post-Trump reprioritization of, of, of what the party is interested in, but, um, the Dr. Seuss stuff, the, uh, yes, the critical race theory stuff. I think that's, that's a serious issue and, and, and you can walk and chew gum at the same time, but yeah, where, where are the attacks on the spending? I mean, Biden is talking about Megan world war two level spending. We're not at war. We're, we're, let alone a world war. <laughs> That's a good point, though. Your, your, your point is that the man's got a point. I think Obama does have a point if, if that's what he was getting at. I mean, if, if he's if he's yeah. grouping in critical race theory as part of the culture war and the Republicans want to focus on, on these cultural issues uh, and he's calling him out and saying, you know, uh, why aren't you focused on the economy? Um, yes, I do think I do think he has a point. Um, and, and again, you can do both. But here it's a matter of emphasis. 
Um, and and I and I I wonder uh, if if this is going to be the course that the party takes uh, between now and the midterms, and then going on to um, to the next presidential election. I think the Republicans feel they've sacrificed their ability to really object to the spending, given that they sat in their hands when Trump was doing it, when he was the drunken sailor. I, I agree. Um, and of course, some of us uh, said so at the time, but we won't go there. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but yes, exactly. you're, you're right. They, they, might, they may feel they just don't have the credibility uh, to do it, or, or they feel that, the, that many of these new voters that Trump brought into the Republican Party care more about the culture stuff than the economic mm. stuff. That could be mm-hmm. the other the other calculation. Well, and and no one right now wants to look like they're on the side of the so-called elites, right? So it's like, and we've been sort of told by the media and the left that spending, 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 that's what helps people who are more working class. And if you object, that's your elitism speaking, right? Your life must be pretty good if you have an objection to any of this. And I think that's been effective in silencing objections to spending. And and you have, uh, you have this, um, a, a group of, of conservatives who are pushing uh, a, a bigger role uh, for the government uh, in this area that, you know, calling for uh, family leave, uh, you know, baby bonds, um, uh, universal basic income. Uh, you, you now have conservative groups uh, pushing this, using the tax code uh, in, in a way that uh, traditionally conservatives have thought the tax code should not be used. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it could be a, le- a, a legitimate uh, change in thinking uh, for right of center uh, 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 folks who, who play in the space that that they've decided um, going forward, this is the Republican Party is going to start um, accommodating this sort of thinking. I, my argument would be that if, if, if you're a voter who is interested in, in, in uh, increasing the child tax credit, uh, the, the Democrats are always going to raise it higher than the Republicans are. So you might as well go, go vote for the, for the Democrats. In other words, if, 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 if Republicans want to play in the sandbox, they're not, they're not going to outdo the Democrats no. at what the Democrats have been doing for a very long time. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know where this leads the, the Republican party. If, if they think they can, they can, um, they can, they can play this game with, with Democrats, but there, but there are, uh, serious Republicans um, and, and serious conservatives that are that are moving in this direction. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I think they think it's modernizing the Republican Party, you know, to sort of shed the George W. Bush. Well, he was a spender, too, but sort of this older stifling feeling around the GOP. And Trump was so popular with his spending. You know, he looked more like a populist and not like a conservative when it came to that, that people think this is the way forward. But, you know, I, you've got three kids. I've got three kids. I worry I still worry. You know, I I had my mom was born in 1941 and came up at a time when you didn't spend more than you earned. And being in debt was considered a very bad thing. And I still have a hangover from that myself, you know, and I don't believe these new economic philosophies. You would know better than I, but that we can we can get away with this and never have to pay the piper. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I think you're right. I don't I don't I don't think we can we can get away with it. But um, uh, what what you can get a what, you know, you can get away with things politically that you can't get away with economically. <laughs> and the right. politicians don't much care about that. <laughs> They're worried more about uh, about about reelection. 
to me, the lesson to take away from from the from the Trump presidency is uh, the economic growth that we had. Growing the economy has to be continue to be the goal. It has to be the centerpiece, I think, of Republican economic policy growth. And 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 Trump showed all the good that can come of that. You, you had, you, you know, he brought in these uh, these minority voters uh, uh, that that no one was expecting him. Uh, to be able to do because of his rhetoric on these issues, yet right. he, he increased his his, his, his his the votes among Hispanics, uh, among Black men in particular, um, among Asians. Uh, he got more uh, votes from Asians than any Republican nominee since George W. Bush in two thousand. This is the guy, same guy that was running around saying China virus, and right. it, okay. it it didn't matter because these folks were responding to the Trump economy pre COVID. And, and, and that needs to be the focus. And to the extent that, that, that tax hikes and regulations and complicated tax codes and so forth hurt growth, I think they're going to hurt the Republican cause. So um, I, I think the, the, the lesson from, from Trump is grow the economy and, and the votes will come. And, 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 and that, that should be the takeaway. Not, not adopt the economic policies of the left. I don't, I don't think that's the, uh, or, or some variation of them. I don't I don't think that's the way forward. And Biden's pushing to undo all those things, all those growth pushers right now. Right. All the, the regulations that their, their line is still that the Republicans don't want dirty water and dirty air. Yeah. Uh, the regulations should come back from everything on culture issues and economic issues that the taxes should go up. You know, all the things that sort of got the economy fired up and rolling are being are being rolled back now at a time when we intentionally stifled our economy and, you know, letting it letting it un- unleash more in the in the wake of the covid restrictions seems to make the most sense but that's not where we're going. Biden seems to be adopting uh the progressive position that opposition to Donald Trump equals support for the entire progressive agenda. Mm. And and uh on climate, on taxes, on regulations, on uh, Iran, on foreign policy. Uh, ju- if people didn't like Trump, it means they will support uh, attacks on fossil fuels, and 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 I I I, I think uh, they're, they're that that's that's a pretty risky position. I d- I don't think that's what voters were saying in the 2020 election. And one reason I don't think they were saying that is because they they gave us a 50-50 Senate and they increased the number of Republicans in the House. So they they do not expect Joe Biden to go buck wild with a progressive agenda that they would have given him large majorities in Congress if that's what they wanted him to do. But he's acting like he's FDR and was elected in a landslide and has huge majorities in the House and Senate. That's the kind of agenda he's putting out there. He thinks he has that kind of mandate. And, and I think that um, the Democrats are in real danger of overreach here if they continue down this road. What's the one thing that the audience should watch when it comes to the Biden economy and the the, the measures he's pushing. I mean, he doesn't look like he's going to get his spending bills through. The infrastructure thing is struggling right now. The domestic agenda seems like it's a non-starter. He just he threw out these huge proposals. It turns out he can't get everything through on reconciliation. He's going to have to get at least his own party and some Republicans. So he's struggling. Um, he's he's sort of went from on a roll to treading water. But what's the one thing people should really watch to that, that concerns you that he's pushing? I think if they change the filibuster rule, it will open the floodgates to the entire progressive agenda. And that's what I'm 
I'm watching. I'm still watching Manchin and Cinema and, and these um, more moderate Democrats that are holding the line now. But um, the pressure on them will not only continue, I think, I think it'll build. And I don't know how long they'll, they'll be able to hold off. Uh, but if they uh, ditch the filibuster and, and just have a simple majority push everything through with a vote from Kamala Harris breaking the tie, that to me is what to keep an eye out for. Yeah. Then we become a, a parliament. Then we look like Great Britain, uh, where you just yeah. you have majority rule and they get to push through their agenda. Yeah. And it just yeah. totally undermines the way the Senate has has worked for decades. Jason, I have so much more. I, I like I want to go through every chapter of all of your books. So can we do this again? Sure, sure. But thank you for, for having me on. I enjoyed it. Well, I have a feeling our next show on Wednesday is going to be the most downloaded show ever. And that is because it is about UFOs. I'm not going to lie. At first, I was like, eh, I don't know. Well, suffice it to say, we just taped it and it's hot fire. It's a hot, hot show. We all loved it. I think it might be all, our, all of our favorite, or at least top three. Don't miss it. Is something out there? And who, if anyone, is behind it? Uh, go ahead and subscribe to the show now so you don't miss it. Download five stars and a nice review if you feel so inclined. We'll talk to you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures.